Would you please take the Word of God with me and turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus and uh, chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, we uh, look at the Ten Commandments here. We also uh, noted some introductory, made some introductory comments about uh, those uh, commandments. And let me highlight a few of them, not all of them that I mentioned. But uh, we know that those uh, commandments were given to a people who were redeemed from bondage. And uh, before each command is given, we can read really verse 1 and 2 over and over again before we mention every single command. That's the intent in verse 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And so we keep that in mind every time before every command. We looked at the first command last time. We also know that these commandments... Although literal must also include a broader, deeper, and more complete application. Now this is very important. We uh, are memorizing Romans chapter 7 in Sunday school. And we're talking about how we should serve not in the oldness of the letter, but in newness of the spirit. Newness of spirit. And so we can't just look at the letter. There's something deeper, more meaningful and more practical than just the observation of the letter of the law. We also noted that these commandments, although primarily negative, also communicate a positive virtue. And finally, these commandments, although righteous, cannot impart righteousness, nor can they take away sins. And it's very important. We are not justified by the deeds of the law. uh, God is the justifier. Uh, And so we understand that. Uh, But yet now that we have been reconciled to God, we who once were His enemies, there ought to be a desire in our lives to live a holy life because He is holy. And certainly we want to be good ambassadors. In the first command, I was trying to think about how we could sum up uh, the first command. If you remember, the first command is an emphasis on the object of our worship. And it's simply this, that God is to be exclusively our God. No other gods before me. Uh, That means that God is to be the exclusive object of our worship. And so we might get the idea from the first commandment that we should not elevate any other small g gods to God's level. Do not elevate other gods to God's level. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It is God and Him alone. It's not God and then another. No, it's God and nobody else. So while the first command is God exclusive, don't elevate other gods to God's level, the second commandment doesn't deal with the object of our worship as much as it deals with the manner of our worship. So while the first command is God exclusive, the second command is God exalted. In this sense that God is not to be depicted by any artists or sculptures. Uh, And the idea of that command, I believe, is the first one is don't bring other gods up to God's level. The second command is don't bring the one true God down to man's level. And so God is, I believe that by the end of this message, hopefully we're going to understand why this command is given. And I believe that The positive virtue of that is that God is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Uh, That's the opposite virtue, we might say, of our practice in contrast to this command. And so, uh, let's look at this second command. So let's stand together for the reading of God's Word, Exodus chapter 20. And what we'll do is we're going to include every time everything from verse 1 and and then add a command each time. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, And the word of God says, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above 
or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me, and keep my commandments. I want you to notice with me verse 4. The first part says, Thou shalt have, uh, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Verse 5, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. So I'd like to preach this evening on the second commandment, Thou shalt not make, bow down, or serve any graven image. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for your word. And Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding, not in the letter alone, but that we might understand the spirit of this command. And Lord, we ask for a specific help as we want to uh, make application for our lives today. We all know that you've been you have been grievously misrepresented. And yet with those words in mind, we want to make sure that we do not participate in misrepresenting you. So we ask that you'd give us understanding, uh, teach us and instruct us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So while the first command is don't elevate other gods to God's level... The second one is don't bring God down to man's level. I want to begin by just first of all asking the question is how is this commandment to be understood? Now certainly there is the preliminary application of well we should not make any graven image. We should not bow down ourselves to any graven image and we shouldn't serve any graven image. And certainly that's the, the, the letter of the law application that uh, there is this idea that there is already from the first command that there is only one God. And certainly we might say that therefore man should not bow down to any other gods. But, but I don't think that that's primarily where uh, that command is directed because he's already settled that there is only one God. That no other God should be elevated to the level of God. There, there is only one God. Do we believe that tonight? I mean, that should be a pretty solid amen there. There is only one God. There are no bunch of gods and everybody chooses their own gods and you all... No, there is only one God. And so with that assumption, we come to the second commandment. And notice the wording, Thou shalt not make... Notice, unto thee any graven image. So I believe that I don't need to spend the time to already establish by way of logic from the first commandment that, okay, we should not have a statue and bow in front of a statue or have a picture in our home and bow in front of the statue and worship that statue and serve that statue or a picture or anything, any depiction that is earthly. Of, or representative of other gods. But I believe here that we ought to think of the second command in the context of God, the one true and living God, that God should not be brought down to man's level. Now, notice here the first part of the command. He says, thou shalt not. Now, this means that this is expressly, expressly forbidden. Uh, there are no circumstances in which the breaking of this commandment is permitted. Now I'm saying that at the onset uh, because of where we're going and because of the potential that we all can make a God out of earthly things and we may not even know it at times. The children of Israel have come, remember, from a place in Egypt that was filled with graven images. Not only were these graven images bowed down to, 
but they were also served. When we read a little later at this same mountain, when Moses is going to be too long on the mountain and he's going to come down as he hears the sounds of war, he's going to find that the children of Israel have, uh, have shaped a golden calf and the children of Israel have said, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Where did they get all these ideas? They got that idea from Egypt. It is an Egyptian idea. And so they're not to bow down. They're not to serve any graven image. There are no circumstances in which it is ever permissible to bow down, to look to, to serve, to worship any image. But the second part is, thou shalt not, notice, make unto thee. Now that's an important part. It doesn't say, thou shalt not make unto God any graven image. It says, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Uh, therefore, the idea of the command is that there should be no attempt on the part of man to make for himself a visual representation of God or of any false God for that matter. In other words, the true worship of God, if it's, it is going to happen, is not going to be done towards an image or even through an image. You see, what is the tendency of man? As a matter of fact, if you look in this very chapter, God is going to mention something in this very chapter that's going to give us an indication as to the tendency of man when it comes to worshiping God. Notice with me in Exodus 20, down to verse 25. He's talking about building an altar in verse 24. Let's read verse 24 and 25, and he says this, An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon by burnt offerings, and thy peace offerings, thy sheep and thine oxen, in all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee and will bless thee. And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. What is he saying here? Now, the, the expression when he says here, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone. The altar would mean that you would grab some stones to build an altar. And he says, when you build an altar, don't hewn the stone. The, the expression hewn, the stone, means to cut or to, if you would, dress it up. To uh, color it or to make it into specific shapes or to put words on it, or hieroglyphics, or some image. And so he says, when you build an altar, don't add anything to it. You will not do that. And if you do that, he says, you have polluted the altar. You see the tendency of man when it comes to the worship of God. He cuts that in this very chapter. He says, when you put up an altar, make sure that you don't, out of your own ability out of your own imagination, try to improve on that which I've asked you to do. By the way, that is the tendency of man. Now, if you hold your place here, uh, I, I want to continue on this thought of what is the tendency of man when it comes to this idea of seeing something earthly. It could be an image or a representation or a painting or a sculpture. Uh, that man's tendency is often if he is brought forth before such an item, that he may tend over time to begin to worship or to use that as a means to worship God. And he ought not to. Turn with me to the book of Numbers in chapter 21. Numbers in chapter 21. Now in Numbers chapter 21, if you remember, the children of Israel were murmuring against Moses. God sent serpents among them, and uh, the serpents bit them, and many of them were sick unto death. And so God commanded Moses to uh, erect a brazen serpent and to set the serpent on the pole. And then if they would look to the serpent that they would be healed. And those who did not look uh, would, uh, would die uh, in, in their trespass. Now that's a picture of Jesus Christ. We know that in the sense because Jesus in John chapter 3 used that illustration. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. 
Now, I want you to notice with me in Numbers 21, verse 8. The Bible says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Now, let me be very clear. God never said that they are to bow down to it. He never said that they are to worship uh, that representation. Now, even though we may understand that that's a, a picture of Jesus Christ, they were not to bow down to that image, to that serpent on the pole. They were not to worship that. They were supposed to just do one thing, look. Now, what happens with that representation over time? Now, those who looked were healed. And no doubt that was a miracle of God, and that's what God said to Moses, tell the people if they look, they will live. Well, turn with me now to 2 Kings chapter 18. Let's see what happens much later on in 2 Kings chapter 18. Now, this is hundreds of years after this has happened. Let's see where the children of Israel are uh, spiritually and what they've done with this idea of a brazen serpent. 2 Kings chapter 18, notice verse 1. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hushia, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty and five years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Abi, uh, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. Now notice verse 4. And he removed the high places, and break the images, and cut down the groves, and break in pieces, notice, the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it, and he called it Nehushtan. Now, Nehushtan just simply means mere brass. He said, that's all that is. It's just brass. But the children of Israel, notice the Bible says they had erected high places. They had evidently images. They had build down groves. The idea of groves is they would, uh, uh, they would carve out uh, the wood and forest and they would go to the woods and they would pray in the woods and worship in the woods before those groves. Cut down all the trees. And finally, break in pieces the serpent. Why? Because the children of Israel evidently saw that as some image, some representation of a past event that God used to heal them. And now here they are, hundreds of years later, they have the brazen serpent and they are worshiping, offering incense to the image. That by the way, in the end, uh, at the beginning, God had told Moses, to make one. But do you see the tendency of man over time? Is to use any representation and to eventually bow down to that representation, to worship that representation, that image. That is the tendency of man. Here's what we know to be true. The material cannot replace, cannot illustrate, or help the spiritual. Let me say that again. The material cannot replace, it cannot illustrate, and it cannot help the spiritual. Now, the Bible says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. The command is, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. So here's what we learn about this command is that graven images are not to be used in worship, nor are images to be used in aiding our worship. Here's where people go astray. Uh, some people go astray where they uh, use images for worship, but they also go astray when they use an image to aid in their worship. Both of those are prohibited in this command. You see, they are, uh, when we think about the, the nature of man, his nature is to want to see something. His nature is to want to 
look at something that is visual, that is representative. And we see that as a pattern of trouble for the children of Israel all throughout their history. One of those ways was, remember, when they asked the prophet Samuel for a king. What did they say? We want somebody to fight for us. Well, had God not fought for them? But they couldn't see him. That's right. They wanted a man to stand as a representative of God that they could see. They wanted to live by sight and not by faith. They wanted a man to fight their battles for them, although they would know by doctrine that the man would be much weaker than God. But yet they still wanted a human representation of God, uh, such is the nature of man. Here's what we learn about this command, is that any image, any picture, any representation, or even, by the way, any system of worship here in this commandment is limited. Why? Here's the reason why. Because God is limitless. Because God is eternal. Because God is self-existent. Because God is dependent on nothing and no one. Because God has no beginning. There is no limit to the power of God. God cannot be contained. God cannot be represented by any image of man's imagination. God cannot be depicted by the greatest statue that could ever be carved by a man or machinery. He cannot and he must not. If you turn with me to Psalm chapter 115, Psalm 115, we learn some specifics in this psalm about the Lord commanding the children of Israel, specifically concerning images. And notice what he says in Psalm 115 in verse 1. The Word of God says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. I want you to notice here what he says. We give glory to the name of God. We give glory for the mercy of God. We give glory for the truth of God. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is now their God? Now here we have a contrast. Here is... Uh, the true God of the Bible. And He, that God, is to be worshipped for who He is, for His mercy and for His truth. Now, the heathen, that's a different story. You see, the heathen have a different idea, a different system, which is part of his natural instinct. Verse 3, But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. That's what the heathens do. They fashion a God according to their own making. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat." They that make them are like unto them. So is every one that trusteth in them. O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. So here is the contrast. Don't uh, the heathen, they fashion something after uh, their own imagination. Those who fashion idols are like unto them. They cannot hear, they cannot see, they cannot smell, they cannot walk, they cannot grab. But God, God, the God of, uh, of, uh, of Israel, notice, is to be glorified in truth for His mercy and for His name. Any and all images of God, any and all images of God are false and misleading. Any and all images of God are false and misleading. I was thinking about Stephen. You remember when he was preaching before the Sanhedrin Council, one of the complaints in the book of Acts that you find over and over again is that they were blasphemed, that the, the apostles and those who 
uh, were preaching the gospel, Paul and Peter, they were accused of blaspheming the name of God. They were accused also of speaking against the temple. And the Jews at the time had really high regard for the temple. In a sense, we might say that the temple itself, the temple itself, had become the object of their worship. We might even say that the patriarchs themselves had become the object of their worship. And you remember what Stephen said. As he's standing before the Sanhedrin council, he preaches a message. And at the end of the message, he says this about God. He says this in Acts 7.47, But Solomon built him God an house. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? What is Stephen saying as he's preaching to the Sanhedrin council? He says, you worship the temple because that's the place that represents God. But it does not represent God. It cannot represent God. Because Solomon, you know what Solomon said, that this temple cannot contain God. 1 Kings 8.27 But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold the heaven, and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. Solomon recognized when he built the first temple for God. He recognized at that very moment that this temple is not a representation of God. That this temple is not the place where God is contained. That this temple is not fit to be the place that is to be worshipped because God is far above heaven. Far above the heavens and the heavens. And that there's nothing in this earth that can contain God. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17. We know in Acts chapter 17 when uh, the Apostle Paul is traveling on his missionary journey and he comes in Acts chapter 17 to Athens. And you remember as he's in Athens, he uh, one day went out and he was looking on Mars Hill in Acts 17.22 and he speaks to the men of Athens, and he says this in verse 23. Notice Acts 17, 23. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Notice what he says. You ignorantly worship. What were they worshiping? The inscription to the unknown God. They were ignorant in their worship. He says this, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that He is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands. Now this is important because we have in mind Exodus, uh, Exodus 20, the second commandment. God is not worshipped with men's hands. As though he needed anything. Here's the reason why God cannot be worshipped with man's hands. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need a representation of himself. God doesn't need to be limited by what man can do with God. Seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Do you think that you can accurately portray the God who gives you the breath that you breathe every moment of your day? He says, And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed the bonds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after Him and find Him, though He be not far from every one of, from every one of us. And here's what he says in verse 28, For in Him we live and move and have our being. It's not the opposite. We don't make God and fashion God according to our imagination, according to our dictates. We live and move in Him. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. Notice verse 29, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the Godhead is like unto gold, 
or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. We should not think of God like unto gold and silver or anything that is made by man's hands. We uh, think of, well, I would say that today in the 21st century, the, the paintings and the modern art is not what it used to be. You sit there puzzled. You're like, wow, this is worth millions of dollars. I'm not sure what it is. Just a bunch of blotches on a, on a piece of paper. But you think about uh, throughout history some of the most beautiful paintings that, that have ever been pictured. And the, the, the most beautiful thing that any one of us could set our eyes on pales in comparison and fails to truly represent the beauty of God. You see, man is commanded to avoid any visible representation of deity. Man should not use any representation of God in worship or any representation of God to assist in worship. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15, he reminded them of that and he said this, Take heed, therefore, take, take therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw, ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Now remember, he's talking about when the Ten Commandments were given. There's nothing that you could saw that you say, here's the fit description of God. You didn't see anything. God just spoke, but you didn't see anything. Lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female. And so he says, don't bring God down. Don't bring God down to man's level. Don't limit God by man's image or artifice or sculpture. Don't bring God down. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. You see, God, why? God is to be regarded and worshipped in the heart. He is not to be portrayed for the eye. I like what Peter Master says. He says, because of this commandment, God by implication is saying the following. Because I am the living personal God, the infinite, eternal Spirit, you must never attempt to depict me visually, for it is impossible to portray such attributes. The moment you reduce me to a puny picture, a lifeless image, you insult my attributes and set a small God in your mind. You see, the second commandment is intended to not only prevent false worship, but also to preserve, to preserve a truthful concept of God. Let me give you an example. Jesus Christ today is often represented in pictures that are inaccurate. Let me just say, Jesus Christ did not have a glow about Him. He did not have a halo over his head. He did not have blonde hair and he did not have blue eyes. He is all, all, almost always, uh, uh, he is almost always in pictures depicted as having long hair. There is not one scriptural reference to Jesus having long hair. Nor is there any indication that he did have long hair. What we know is this. You know, we think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we ever wonder, why is there not a description of Jesus Christ as to what He looked like and, and how He appeared to people? There's a reason for that. We know what Isaiah 53 tells us. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as at a root of a dry ground. He hath no form or comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. 
You mean to tell me that Jesus Christ looked like a regular Jew that day? That's exactly what I'm saying. There's nothing, there was nothing spectacular about his physical appearance. Nothing whatsoever. And by the way, there's a reason for that. Why? Because we are not to worship God in any representation on earth. You see, Jesus Christ should not, should not be visualized in our minds as a man made by our own imaginations. As we think about this command, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness. He talks about of what is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. He says in verse 5, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them or serve them. And the idea is if you make a visual representation, you will get to the point where you will bow down yourself to that representation and eventually you will serve that representation and that concept of God. Now I'm, I want to emphasize the fact that this is not just uh, graven image of a false god. I'm talking about a representation of the one true and living God. That if we have a representation of the one true and living God, it will lead to us bowing down before that image and eventually uh, uh, serving that image. Why? Because whatever that image is, it is a false view of God. It is false. Now people have done that, we know, in their own imaginations. If you would Google a picture of Jesus Christ today, they have depicted the most beautiful, handsomest, blonde hair, blue eyes. And often you'll hear people say something like, here's what happens. People say, well, Jesus was a, he was a, a man who loved. He's a God of love. And let's represent that in some, in some image. And then we, um, in contrast, you think about the scene at the Lord's table. You often find that. And then you find Judas there. He's you know, in the corner. He looks a little strange and, and, and creepy. And it's like, oh, that's, that's Judas. He looks, he looks rough. That's, that's, that's the man. Let me tell you, they trusted him with the money. He didn't look creepy. He looked like all the other disciples. There's nothing strange about his appearance. But there was also nothing spectacular about the appearance of Jesus Christ. He is not to be brought down to man's level. This command also comes, I'm going to make application in just a moment, but I want to uh, notice here that this command comes with both a warning and a promise. Now, if this command is to be broken, there is a warning that is announced, and then there is, uh, if this command is obeyed, there is a promise or a blessing that is also announced. Here's the warning. Uh, he says, For the Lord thy God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and the fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Here's the warning. If men make a representation of God in their worship, if they attempt to put something between God and man, surely they are harming not only themselves, but their children and their children's children. You see, this sin is not without consequence. And the consequence here, consequences are grave. Their wrong ideas about God will be transmitted to their children and we must be very careful to pass to our children any wrong concept of God. Any depiction of God to aid man in worship eventually down the road will only bring hatred for God in the generations to follow. He says in this command, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. You see, that's where it leads to. Man makes his own concept of God. And whatever that concept is, is false. It's misleading. And if you pass that on to your children, you're going to find, as the generations go, that whatever concept they have of God is a false concept, and what they're going to do is they're going to end up hating that God that you've brought down to man. 
Now here's the promise. That's the warning. Here's the promise. If men would simply do away with any graven image, any depiction of God, any man-made concept of God, and get into a real connection with God in spirit and in truth, without anything between God and man, the result will be that God will extend mercy on thousands of generations. It is very important that a man only worship the true and living God exclusively, no doubt. It is also of great importance that man know know how God is to be worshipped. Now let me bring down to the, the application for us. You know, we can make, and many religions have, make the communion table an object of idolatry. You see, there is a danger in making the Lord's Supper, for example, something more than a simple memorial service. A time of a sincere examination where we are simply declaring that we have communion with God. There is, there is absolutely nothing in the elements themselves that can restore broken communion with God. Do we understand? When we pass the bread, there is nothing in the bread itself that can restore our communion with God. There is nothing in the fruit of the vine that we drink that somehow has some spiritual transformation that happens inside of us and that all of a sudden we become pure because we've partaken in the fruit of the vine at the Lord's table. But guess what? There are many religions that have made that a God. The Roman Catholics, they teach transubstantiation. They believe and they teach that the bread literally transforms into the flesh of Jesus Christ and that the fruit of the vine literally transforms itself into the literal blood of Jesus Christ and then it imparts and they believe that that is them receiving Jesus Christ. They've made communion a God. They worship that God. They line up to that God that says, Give me this God in this bread and in this cup. Give me that God. I want to receive that God. That's not God at all. It's a graven image. Many people today have a crucifix with specifically Christ on a cross. And many people who consider themselves Christians, they put that crucifix on the wall and in the morning they bow down before that crucifix thinking that that crucifix somehow imparts some spiritual power to them and they ask the crucifix, Jesus Christ on that crucifix to help them through that day. There is no power in a crucifix. That is not God. It is not a fit representation of God. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. By the way, the cross itself can be the object of worship. Now, if you have a necklace and there's a cross and you wear it, I'm not here to attack you. I'm here to specifically point out that if you wear a cross around your neck and somehow you think that that's going to give you some special power, you are mistaken. There is no power in that object. If you pray and you think, if I just hold that cross around my neck and if I pray, God will hear my prayer. No, He will not. You're making a graven image, the, either not the object of, a, of your worship, but the means through which you worship God. And you cannot do that. You cannot trust in anything earthly. Today, the Roman Catholics, they go to a priest. The priest is their God. Why? Because it is the priest that gives them absolution of their sins. There is no such thing in God's Word. That's a God. We think about people who've made prayer itself their God. Remember what Jesus Christ said in Matthew 6, 7. He says, But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. You walk into the booth with the priest, and the priest says, All right, here's what you've done. All right, now say the rosary seven times. And they think somehow that as they go through the beads and the different elements of the rosary, that somehow they... Now the, the, the sinfulness departs from them and now they're, they're all good. Vain repetition. That is heathenistic. Heathenistic. But let's think about now, that's been going on for a long time, but let's think about maybe the, the idea of exciting performances in church. I like what Peter Masters said. He says, worship 
in the Bible was made simple and spiritual, uncluttered by elaborate human ornamentation and gimmickry. We are effectively warned that we are allowed no scope to embellish the worship of God with unnecessary artistic trimmings and extras. Because God has designed a way of worship by intelligent, heartfelt words, whether sung or said. In many passages, the Bible indicates that we may have instrumental accompaniment, but today's artistic musical productions exhibiting human skill and showmanship and intended largely for pleasure go way beyond the accompaniment, tearing down the principle enshrined in the second commandment. Entertainment has taken over the worship of the Lord, and so much so that there is often no time for Bible reading and prayer. You see, today we can make anything God. The, right, uh, a graven image is man's artistry, man's ability to represent God. And today, and by the way, we've, through the years, we've had many people have come to church, and often they'll say something like this, and I say that because it's occurred many times. It says, we love the preaching. It's just we're looking for something more exciting in the music. I'd be a rich man if I could count every time. I heard somebody say that. Now what I would say to you right now is that is a graven image. The worship system itself has become a God. Where you're no longer interested in what God has to say. You're interested in the mode of worship. That is idolatry. That worship itself has become a graven image by the way, uh, uh, we, I've heard also this. this is, um, when are you getting a church building? Now, I, I know, we're, I know we're, we're in the United States of America, and we've been praying for a church building, and, and that, that's nice. But the building has absolutely nothing to do with our worship of God. But some people think you have to be in some type of building so that you can properly worship God. That is a graven image. You've limited God to a man-made square. And no matter how beautiful it may be, no matter how grand it may be and how tainted the windows are, it does not aid in the worship of God. And it cannot. You've heard people say this, Oh, I came into this building and I just felt so spiritual. The building has no ability to make you feel spiritual. You're just impressed by man's artistry. I want to end with two things, and that is what uh, G. Campbell Morgan said. He says, God called men into His own presence to immediate worship. They worship not when they listen. We worship not when we listen to preaching. Not when they are attentive to the form and fashion of music. Not when they are thinking of a table upon which the emblems are spread. But when they pass through the preaching and when they pass through the emblems and when they come face to face with God, whenever a man stops short of that face to face worship of the eternal God, he is working ruin to his own character because he is breaking the second commandment. Let's end with John 4. You remember the woman at the well? She was a Samaritan woman. We know the Samaritans had no dealing with the Jews. and The context is that the, the, the Samaritans had basically set up their own worship system. They had their own temple. They had their own rituals. They had their own priests. They had their own stuff. Their, whole, their, their own way to, to, to worship. And in the conversation between this, this woman and, and Jesus Christ, I want to bring your attention to verse 19. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye Notice, oh, how sobering those words are. Ye worship 
ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must, you notice that word, must. There is no other way to worship God. Must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Here's what we learn. If true worship of God is to take place, it will be characterized by truth. And also by an untarnished communion with God. Spirit. If true worship of God is to take place, it will be characterized by truth and also by an untarnished communion with God. Too many today, they speak of, I love the spirit of this worship. Any spirit of worship, any spirit of worship that is devoid of the truth of who God is, is no worship at all. We had a great time worshiping God today. Here's my, answer, my, my question. What did you learn about Him? What truth did your mind go to about God? Was it just a feeling that you had? Because of what was provoked in you? Were you impressed by the artists? Were you impressed by the images? What is it? What is it? That we are impressed with. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Any concept of God. We should not imagine our minds. Because anything we would imagine ourselves. Who are by the way finite. Of a God who is infinite. Will always fall short of who God is. God must be set at liberty. Not confined to what we think. By the way. That's why when you look around. uh, There's. No crucifix around here. Now we want the place to look nice, certainly. We want to do our best for the Lord. But we don't come and we don't worship some statue. We don't think that if we put some, you know, uh, by the way, we can put some scripture on the wall. But the writing on the wall does impart to us Right, anything spectacular, anything special. The truth. You see, uh, the positive virtue of this command is this. The just shall live by faith. Mm-hmm. The just shall live by faith. We live by faith. We come to church, we worship God by faith. Mm-hmm. The opposite is sight. And man is consumed with what he can see. Yes. And when he does so, he limits God. May we never do that.